Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, exploring the deep sea with Helen Scales and her new book, The Brilliant Abyss. Dr Helen Scales is a marine biologist, writer and broadcaster. Her stories of the ocean appear in various publications, including National Geographic magazine, The Guardian and New Scientist. Among her books are The Guardian bestseller Spirals in Time, which was nominated for the Royal Society of Biology Book Award, the children's book, The Great Barrier Reef, and New Scientist Book of the Year, Eye of the Shoal. Helen teaches at Cambridge University and is scientific advisor to the marine conservation charity Sea Changers. And her latest book, which we're going to be talking about today, is The Brilliant Abyss, True Tales of Exploring the Deep Sea, Discovering Hidden Life, and Selling the Seabed. Helen, welcome back to Little Atoms. Thank you very much. It's lovely to be back. So tell us what the idea behind this one is. So, the deep sea. Um, it's been something that's been bubbling away in my mind for quite a long time now. And the book kind of really sort of, it, it gathered pace and it, and I felt kind of this urgent need to write it for a couple of reasons, really. One, which was just sort of realisation that basically the most exciting and extraordinary discoveries in science, okay, maybe in biology, I'll narrow it down to biology, but they're basically being made in the deep ocean. You know, the most bizarre species and creatures and e- whole ecosystems are being discovered where people never expected them. And we are just in this kind of golden age of discovery really because we've got these incredible technologies um deep diving robots and machines that take themselves off and wander around the ocean for months and then come back and tell you what they you know bring back video and all sorts of stuff so we've got this view into the deep we've never had before really and so we're finding all this extraordinary stuff out about it and then at the same time i guess the real sense of urgency behind the book was this also this realization that the deep sea the deep ocean is not so vast and so remote that it's out of touch and sort of beyond the reach if you like of human impacts and that uh, we are causing changes in this this massive place as well and some new ones are coming up which are quite worrying and so i just sort of felt this dual need to tell people about this amazing place and also kind of show sort of warn what's coming in terms of these environmental impacts that are sort of, some of them are underway and, and some of them are kind of on the horizon. So to get us to the, the deep ocean, the abyss, um, what we mean by that, talk us through the, the different layers of the sea. And you illustrate this in the book by dropping a marble in it. Yeah, so I guess I did that just to try and get like it's the idea of get wrapping your head around just how massive the deep ocean is so we're talking about everything from like 200 meters down to the bottom and the average depth of the ocean is around about 4000 meters and then it goes down another uh, 7000 down to the bottom of the deepest trench the mariana trench and there's a whole bunch of trenches that are deeper than 10000 meters 
not only is it enormously deep, it's also got this huge coverage, like more than half of the planet's surface. Um, but the marble thing was just this idea of trying to wrap our heads around that depth. So basically, I got I got a friend of mine who's a good, uh, a very smart physicist to, uh, to help me with the calculations. And I said, well, look, if I dropped a marble off the side of a boat, a little glass marble like we would have played with at school years ago, how long would it take to get through all the different zones? So you've got this sort of like a jelly uh, Sunday kind of a dessert and a tall glass thing going on with the deep sea with these different layers layered on top of each other. Um, you've got the sunlit zone, which is the top 200 metres where the sun is still shining and you've got algae and plants and things are growing very nicely. Um, but as the it takes uh, a few minutes to fall through that and then it enters the twilight zone, which is this deep blue inky part of the ocean where just the blue light is left and everything else is absorbed and it's not enough light really to power photosynthesis so we haven't got any plant life or algae life providing new food and that's between 200 meters and a thousand meters down and I actually off the top of my head I'm going to forget the exact timings it takes for us to pass through those different areas I think it's like is it half an hour I think through the twilight zone something like that um, and then it's uh, the marble will drop into the midnight zone which sounds even more exciting where there's no sunlight at all so this is from a thousand meters down and basically sunlight's all been absorbed so it's permanently dark the whole time and and it keeps on going falling 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 until sort of the abyss is sort of usually we're talking about sort of Technically, the abyss begins around 4,000 metres. And then you've got these amazing deep trenches, which are the Hadal zone after the Greek god Hades, the underworld. And basically to reach all the way to the bottom of these very, very deep, the deepest, deepest parts of the deep sea um, would take six and a half hours um, from the top to the bottom. That's how massive the deep is in that vertical plane and it's even that I still think it's just it's ridiculously mind-boggling how how big that is and the, the kind of the point I'm trying to make with that is that it's this huge living space and that you know this is the biggest single part of the biome the living space on our planet is the deep ocean so we really need to get to know it you know if we if suddenly all the water on the planet disappeared I mean we probably would have more important things to worry about but what would the ocean floor look like so it's incredibly diverse, actually. And I think that's one of the, the things that I'm trying to get across in the book, actually, is that it's not just sort of endless, muddy, boring, abyssal plains. Although there are, you know, there are those areas that are kind of flat sort of prairies, if you like, these sort of open areas that are perhaps undulating uh, sort of open areas uh, cover huge amounts of the deep. But you've got loads of really interesting um, geological features, too. So, so the first thing I think you'd notice if there was no water is that the planet looks like it exploded and then was kind of crudely stitched back together. And there are these enormous kind of scars really running across the planet. And that's uh, at the edges of tectonic plates. So where, where these massive slabs of the Earth's surface are broken up and you've got these connections between them, like a massive jigsaw piece, basically. And then some places they're crashing together. And that's usually where you get um, these deep trenches because one plate dives under another and you get these ridiculously deep, big V-shaped chasms. And then on either side of that, you generally get sort of mountains popping up because you've got this sort of enormous uh, volcanic activity going on at the edges of these tectonic plates. And then other places, you've got, you've got the plates pulling apart. Those are these mid, um, mid-ocean ridges form where, again, you've got this kind of bubbling up of hot magma from down beneath the earth, uh, within the earth's crust, forming these great long mountains. 
mountain chains. So you've got this kind of scars and mountain chains running across the planet. It's the biggest continuous mountain range, if you like, in the world. I mean, there's, these things are much, much longer than any of the mountain ranges we have out on the continents. So you've got these incredible geological features running across these massive ocean basins. And then in between, yeah, you've got these abyssal plains, um, but you've got seamounts popping up. We're not quite sure how many, but you've got certainly tens of thousands of ginormous sunken volcanoes, sort of single peaks of these volcanoes that pop up here and there. Um, maybe even millions, depending on how big you think they need to be. Some of the smaller ones are hard to find, but we've probably got millions of those. So you've got this really kind of diverse geological landscape. And then I guess if you're moving away from those, say, from the mid-ocean ridges going across the plains towards the continents, to get back up onto land, if that's what you're going to do, you would have to clamber up these really steep continental shelves, this great big kind of cliff edge that you get at the edge of continents. And then you you would sort of get to the top of that and that would be the shallow seas, which are, you know, sort of several hundred metres as opposed to several thousand metres. So, yeah, so the, the geology of the seabed's really diverse. You've got, you know, all sorts of stuff going on. It's really active. Things are moving around and there's volcanoes and hot springs and all sorts of things popping up. So I think the planet would look pretty cool without any water, I have to say. You talk about when the, the first serious um, substantial survey of what the deep was like in terms of life, in terms of, you know, sort of species. The first serious one was done um, by a guy called Edward Forbes in the Aegean, which I guess in and of itself seems like an interesting place to start because, you know, while parts of the uh, parts of the Mediterranean, you know, I suppose are pretty deep, they're clearly not as deep as the oceans. Tell us what he found and I guess by the end of his survey what he thought. Yeah, so Forbes was, um, he was really influential, actually. He was clearly highly liked. He was a British naturalist and he was um, uh, a lot of, you know, the sort of scientific establishment at the time. We're talking, I think, the 1840s, 50s kind of thing. Really liked him and he was, uh, you know, and he did lots of amazing stuff in coastal waters too. So he was sort of dredging around the British Isles and finding loads of cool species around here and showing, you know, there was amazing life in the oceans. But he went to the Aegean on, a, um, I think he was there for a couple of years, actually. It was quite a long expedition. And, uh, and he was dredging, but indeed, waters uh, and looking for life. And he was inspired, I think, partly by Alexander von Humboldt, who um, just a few years prior to that had been surveying, well, he'd, he'd been working in South America and had worked out and had these grand theories about how life changes across the planet, and on land, that is, and that we've got these, you know, we've got more diversity at the equator and in the tropics compared to further away and up mountains, you get this kind of decrease in life. And so Forbes was sort of looking to see if he could see something similar similar in the ocean. You know, could he understand the patterns of life going down into the deeper sea? I mean, I should point out that at this point as well, like no one really knew what was down there. Everyone was always wondering about what lives in the deep ocean and kind of just assuming there was nothing. So, you know, from the starting point of everyone's kind of thinking it's probably just dark and cold and the pressure is ridiculously high so surely there's nothing down there so already there's that idea in his mind of well am I going to find anything oh no let's see so he puts down these dredging nets and this is all done by hand incredibly labour intensive stuff that him and his uh, the crew of this ship had to kind of lower down basically this sort of canvas bag with holes in it down to the seabed and drag it across the seabed at different depths and pull it back up and see what they found 
And he came back, collected enormous numbers of animals and had these incredible collections. But what it showed him, he thought, was that basically life did a similar thing as you would go up a mountain. Life was sort of running out as you went down into the deeper depths. And he saw this kind of gradual diminishment of life. And he reckoned he extrapolated that and said, well, round about 500 metres, there's no life at all. He called it the Azoic theory. You know, there's no life, he thought, down below those depths. And this caught on and people really stuck to it. And, and it was a real kind of established idea among scientists, which was, nope, there's nothing down there. Like, as I say, these conditions are so extreme that just nothing has evolved to survive down in the deep. So life is basically in the shallow seas and a bit kind of reaches a bit further down for the first few hundred metres and then that's it. The problem is there were a couple of flaws to his study, um, which didn't come out until quite a bit later. I mean, one problem was that this uh, device he was using, this dredging device, basically got clogged up with mud as soon as he put it down because of the way that those uh, it was this sort of really small holes in this big canvas bag that essentially if he kind of put it down in a muddy area, it would just get full up with mud and whatever he happened to catch in the first few minutes was all he would get. It would be full so nothing else could come up. And then actually, linking to what you said about how the Aegean is a bit of an odd place to look, and actually it was a pretty bad choice, unfortunately, of somewhere to study the deep ocean because actually there isn't much down in the deep in the Aegean. But but that's because there's not. It's a really a hungry part of the ocean. There's not much food coming down from the surface for various reasons. It's it's just not. It's not a part of the ocean that's full of life anyway. So it's not a good way of looking at at other places. It's not a good analogy for other parts of the oceans. Um, but he didn't know that at the time. So you know he made this this azoic theory. And everyone kind of went along with it, thinking merrily, well, no, there's not much down there and the deep is basically empty. But he should have been looking elsewhere, basically. <laughs> That's the problem. That, that theory is one of those things that happens periodically in science where there's, there's a theory that's, you know, it's a truism. Everybody believes it. They're sticking to it. But plenty of people who are not necessarily scientists, but people that are, you know, sailors and, and what have you, people that are out in the water, maybe fishing, are aware that, you know, people are finding all over that there is life below that depth, but just nobody, you know, nobody will say it officially. Yeah, that's it. And also that kind of just disbelief and that, you know, oh, it's got to be a proper scientist with proper scientific kit, otherwise we don't believe you. Mm. And it was absolutely the case for this, this deep sea question. Um, you know, there were other people going out and surveying the the deep for sort of practical and um, commercial reasons too. Like they were starting to lay things like um, telegraph cables across the Atlantic and it was important to know what the bottom of the sea was like. You know, I've described this kind of crazy mountain chain um, and there was one going through the middle of the Atlantic. So they needed to know where was the best place to lay these massive long great big cables. And this was enormous undertaking to sort of lay these communications cables um, between America and Europe. So surveying teams went out to figure out how deep the bottom of the ocean was and what kind of conditions were down there was it sandy or muddy or sharp rocky bits and pieces and so they were you know quite often they'd sort of send down these long lines and stuff would sort of grab onto it and sometimes they had their sort of sampling devices that would sort of grab a bit of seabed to see what the condition whether it was sand and so on and they'd also grab things like starfish and you know worms and things and they so you know they were seeing that there was life incredibly deep and even before that actually I mean things like um, during the whaling times uh, when a lot of people were hunting things like sperm whales and um, you know and they'd 
they'd affixed on these incredibly long lines of rope that they'd need to kind of until these animals sort of finally gave up and and swam back up to the surface. And so I think those whalers also had a pretty good idea that these whales dive down very, very deep and they must be doing that for a reason and that presumably they're down there hunting for giant squid because you end up seeing these giant squid beaks in their bellies afterwards. But no, you're absolutely right. It is kind of that frustrating thing that it took a really long time for the scientists to kind of catch up and go, okay, yeah, maybe you've got a point and maybe we do need to really go and check this out properly and go out and uh, and so yeah and they did go sort of later on in the 19th century there were expeditions that took scientists out and they did start doing what they considered to be more kind of extensive surveys of the deep and finding that there's life all the way down if you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery think again juvederm volux xc is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime even better this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment no maintenance required improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with juvederm volux xc for important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Listen to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Helen Scales, and we're talking about her latest book, The Brilliant Abyss. And Helen, to bring us right up to present day, obviously, since you know, since the, the Edward Forbes day, we've realised that there is abundant life right at the bottom of the ocean in the trenches around hydrothermal vents and things. We've visited the uh, you know the Mariana Trench. Even various billionaires have been off for fun and visited the uh, the Mariana Trench. And the book, throughout the book, uh, we find you talking about an expedition that you were on on a survey ship, the Pelican. So tell us what you were doing. So 
I was with a team from the Louisiana University's Marine Consortium, LUMCON, down in the southern United States. And we set off uh, in our ship, the Pelican, out into the Gulf of Mexico. And the primary mission, actually, was to understand the connections between land and the deep sea in terms of the food availability. Because one of the things about the deep ocean, which we definitely know is true, is there's life all the way down there, but there's not much to eat and food is hard to come by. So basically anything goes in the deep ocean, including chunks of wood. So believe it or not, there are entire ecosystems that have evolved in the deep sea specifically to eat trees and to eat chunks of wood and and, um, branches and so on that kind of get swept offshore in storms and and eventually get waterlogged and sink down into the abyss. And it's a big parcel of carbon and it's it's worth something trying to eat it because, you know, there's not a lot of other food around. So we were putting down logs, basically, into the deep sea in various arrangements and various sizes to try and understand more about these ecosystems. You've got things like these crazy um, clams, which are specialists on wood-eating clams and they bore into the wood um, and make way for lots of other species to move in. And you get these amazing kind of oases of life, really, like little islands of, of life if you've left these logs down just for a couple of months. So I think we picked up some logs that were put down about a year earlier to sort of see how they'd been uh, getting on. And we uh, we brought those up and picked all the animals out and sent them off for analysis back on land. So yeah, trying to understand that kind of the connection of carbon between the land and the deep sea. And then you can ask questions like, well, how is climate change going to affect food coming into the deep sea if we've got a change in uh, in storms and the amount of wood that's getting swept offshore? Um, if you've got deforestation, for example, in coastal areas, how's that going to affect the food coming into the deep? So we were collecting wood, putting wood down, collecting lots of little creatures that eat that wood. And we also did something else which no one had ever done before, which is we put dead alligators <laughs> into the abyss. Um, uh, Whole ecosystems that eat dead alligators. Yeah, well, that's the question we were asking as well. I mean, we know and it's been known for quite a while that um, dead whales are an incredibly important source of food. And again, you've got these unique ecosystems that evolve around. We call them whale falls. These, when, a, when a whale finally um, dies and sinks down into the deep, there's just a whole kind of array of species that scavenge and then specialise in eating different parts of them, the, the meat and the blubber and then eventually the bones. And we wanted to know if the same would happen with alligators because, I mean, alligators aren't marine species, but they live in fresh waters and a bit like trees, they will get swept, dead bodies will get swept offshore and people have seen them kind of bobbing around after storms and so on. And so we just thought, well, let's see what happens if an alligator does arrive in the deep and what comes in to eat it. And we didn't have any idea what would happen. So we, we had three alligators and we put them down in different areas and we went back to look at them at different times after that. Um, the first one was after just 24 hours and we were completely blown away. This was all using remotely operated, basically deep diving robots. We went in the deep ourselves. We sent these machines that have like live cameras and they can move things around and we're all sat on the boat at the top watching the video feed from 2,000 metres beneath our feet and the kind of camera pans up to this alligator that we've left down there the previous day and it's covered in these amazing scavenging creatures called giant isopods. Imagine if you will a, well a woodlouse, they're closely related to woodlice that you'd find in, in a garden or under a plant pot, only they are the size of rugby balls and they're bright, they're pink. And they are giants. I mean, it's a thing called um, deep sea gigantism you get, which is that some species just grow really, really big in the deep, probably because of this lack of food. And so these giant isopods will eat, they'll feed like once every four years. And they'd found this alligator. There were dozens of them. They were busy chowing down. It was amazing sight. It was, it was completely, I and mean, we just didn't think they would find it so quickly, actually. That was what was surprising. 
Just go back a second. So how does something being oversized equate with there not being food? So it's like a camel's hump, basically. It's like a massive store of fat. These isopods are just, yeah, they've got these huge fatty bodies. And that's so they just eat and eat and eat, lay down layers of fat. And that's what they can draw off for the next few years. So I think that's I think there's sort of two things can happen with steep sea species. Some get really tiny. You get kind of miniaturization of some groups of animals, again, for the same sort of reasons. There's not much food around. And others are big to sort of see themselves through the lean times and making the most of these sort of sporadic lumps of food that come down like dead alligators occasionally and things like that. Some of the, you know, the weird and wonderful species that you talk about in the book that live at the sort of the, the very depths on the sea floor. How are they able, like, obviously, like, we've already talked about the fact that there is, you know, generally a, a lack of food, or well, food is very scarce, and they've obviously adapted to that. But physiologically, how are they able to survive such an extreme environment under, you know, under the pressure of the sea, for instance? Yeah, so the pressure is that is really the one thing. Well, apart from, yeah, there's food and, it's, and there's no light. There's other things to think about, but pressure is just massive. I mean, down in the abyss, you're talking about the equivalent of... You know, hundreds of times atmospheric pressure, the sort of the idea is a kind of a, an African elephant standing on every inch of your body. Um, enormous pressures that, you know, is so much that it should be kind of bending biological molecules out of shape you know not just it's not just the, you know of course you wouldn't be able to breathe or sort of have any kind of gas pocket that wouldn't that would be impossible to inflate but even cells and molecules start to get bent out of shape so amazing kind of molecular level adaptations have taken place in all sorts of organisms one of my favorites is the deep sea snailfish uh, and these are the deepest dwelling vertebrates they live in oceanic trenches down they live in the mariana trench there's sort of different most of the trenches that have been looked at have their own species of these these snailfish. They're kind of interesting looking creatures. They're sort of white and flabby and they're apparently very gooey. I've never met one, but apparently if you if they are brought up to the surface, they're just full of sort of goo and slime. And, and actually that's an adaptation to the pressure because it's sort of it's fine to be made of sort of jelly basically. Lots of creatures in the deep sea are made of jelly. And in the high pressure, that's sort of, it's fine. and doesn't get crushed too much. But um, yeah, these snailfish are, are pale. Uh, they've got tiny piggy eyes. They probably can't really see very well. Uh, and they uh, have got dimples across their mouths. They look like they're kind of, a bit like, it look a bit like a Cornish pasty mouth. They've got these funny dimples, which we think is probably to help them find food. They, they eat little crustaceans called um, amphipods, which sort of wriggle around at the bottom of these deep sea trenches. And that's probably sort of helping them detect movements in the water with this, this, uh, crinkly lips that they have but one of the secrets they have these fish to be pressure resistant is they have loads of this molecule inside their bodies called um well tmao um trimethylamine oxide i think but anyway it's basically it's what makes fish smell fishy it's a compound that helps protect enzymes and other proteins from pressure and what you find is that the deeper a fish lives underwater the more of this stuff they have so these snailfish have the most uh high concentrations of this molecule of any of them which presumably means they smell worse than any other fish although i couldn't get any of the deep sea biologists who specialize in these fish to confirm what they smell like um but i'm just assuming that that's the case they're stinky um but yeah so it's kind of like a chemical protection basically it stops water from getting crushed into their enzymes and protects these sort of the structure of these important molecules at these ridiculously high depths and actually the kind of cool thing about it is that some scientists have kind of predicted how deep these fish should be able to go because there comes a point where you kind of can't get 
any more of this stuff in their bodies without radically altering their biology because it's so concentrated. And they've kind of they've shown that it's around about 8,000 meters that they think fish can go to and no fish have been seen deeper than that. So they might be right that this is there is a kind of physiological barrier to going any deeper than about 8,000 meters if you're a fish. Now you talk about sperm whales in the book and you know while they can't dive that deep they can dive incredibly incredibly deep and and as deep as any whale and while obviously a whale is not made of jelly there is something interesting about a sperm whale's blood tell us about that yeah so i mean yeah they're one of the deeper diving um whales a couple of other beaked whales like qva's beaked whales also go pretty deep but i mean the thing with sperm whales is they spend about well is it three quarters of their lives pretty much in the deep at least thousand meters down they can get down to two thousand meters and that's where they are hunting for awesome giant squid and, and other um, fishy things down there and one of the reasons that they do that and the way they can kind of succeed at it is that they bring enormous amounts of oxygen with them and it's not in their lungs their lungs actually collapse they have collapsible lungs their ribs kind of just fold down when they get past the first few hundred meters most of the oxygen is in their blood and in their muscles and they have a molecule called myoglobin which is a bit like hemoglobin that we use in our bodies to transport oxygen around um, but it's slightly different and we have some of it as well I think in our muscles but they have enormous amounts of it so much of this myoglobin that basically it should just kind of stiffen them up into a sort of solid lump but in sperm whales and actually in various other very little deep diving marine mammals it's like a it's a non-stick version of this molecule basically which repels the molecules apart from each other so they don't actually end up sort of seizing up and causing these animals to be uh, unable to move um, but they do have a, enormous volumes of blood and it's sort of dark and sticky and you know, almost black I think their muscles can be almost black um, but that's the oxygen that they can bring with them from the surface and it means that they can hunt in these deep waters which you don't which doesn't have much of its own oxygen so things like giant squid actually get a bit kind of dumb and slow because um they've got to breathe oxygen from the water and there's not much there for them to have so these smart whales are kind of cheating the system a bit and um they've got their own supplies and so they can quite happily swim around hunting for these slow squid and um they only have to come up after an hour or so it's amazing right to finish us off uh, you mentioned earlier on and you talk in the book about some of the threats that you know man is posing towards the deep ocean you would think that it's somewhere that was so difficult to get to in the first place would be uh, would be pretty safe from the, the depredations of humans but it turns out that that's not the case what are some of the some of the more the more pressing threats so, I mean, we've heard a lot about plastic waste and plastics are everywhere. And of course, plastic is getting into the deep sea. Um, that's almost a sort of a no-brainer, really. Of course, that would happen. I can't see how it couldn't. So we're seeing things like plastic pollution, chemical pollution making its way down there. But I think the two things that I find the most worrying and that are the most pressing are, well, firstly, deep sea fishing. We've had uh, a whole era of people trawling these underwater seamounts, um, these volcanoes I mentioned, for various species of fish, which are it's basically the, the wrong kind of fish to try and do anything sustainable with because they live for hundreds of years. There's things like orange ruffy, which are just fairly normal looking fish, but actually have these incredibly long lives. They don't breed till they're about 40 years old. So, you know, it's really hard to imagine how to sustainably fish such an ancient creature. And if they weren't sustainably fished at all, they were basically wiped out. It was more like mining than fishing. That doesn't happen so much nowadays, mostly 
because those fisheries collapsed. But there are other deep sea fish that are being targeted and they're just it's just as far from the ideal species to be trying to catch. And they're not feeding people. It's to provide sort of things like um, nutraceuticals, kind of, you know, omega-3, um, you know, liver oil from deep sea sharks, that kind of thing. And there are more plans to start fishing the open waters of the twilight zone for these hugely abundant little fish called lanternfish. And again, we won't be eating them. They're too tiny, they're too bony. They'll probably be turned into fish meal and possibly margarine and sort of additives to our diets if we think we need a bit more omega-3. So that's one thing which is worrying. And then the other is deep sea mining, which is, hasn't started yet, but there are plans afoot and it really is kind of this hot topic that um, right now there are companies, it's been coming and going for decades, people talking about trying to extract metals from the deep seabed from places like um, hydrothermal vents from seamounts that, that are covered in these rocks, which have, they do have rich deposits of various metals and from abyssal plains. And now we have the technology to do it. We've got these deep diving submersibles, which could go and collect these things and dig away at these deposits. And we're being told that we need these metals to make things like solar panels and electric car batteries. Cobalt is one thing we could get from the deep sea. And that's an element which could be used in car batteries. But the question is, what impact is this going to have? I mean, this is a whole new way of extracting and exploiting the Earth's resources. And even though we've, we're in this golden era of discovery in the deep sea, we're still a long way from understanding what kind of impacts mining could have. And not just on the places that are being mined, but throwing up huge toxic clouds of sediments up into these crystal clear waters above and, and lots of things to think about. So sort of increasingly scientists are saying, well, perhaps we need to just stop and think and understand more about this before it goes ahead. But we could see, yeah, we could see advances in plans for mining really going ahead in the next year or so. And it's definitely one that we need to be thinking, I think, a lot more carefully about before deciding as a kind of global community that this is something that should be done. So I've been talking to Helen Scales. We've been talking about her latest book, The Brilliant Abyss, True Tales of Exploring the Deep Sea, Discovering Hidden Life and Selling the Seabed, which is out now in the UK from Bloomsbury Sigma. Helen, thank you so much for taking the time to tell me about it. It's been a pleasure, Neil. Thanks so much for having me on again. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.